Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Morning, guys. Thank you for making it out here on a time change Sunday. You guys are champions. You should give yourself a pat on the back. Man, I love it how, like, you know, with phones and stuff like that, we're sort of like... We'll just wake up at any time and, you know, like it tells us when to wake up. We don't even really notice the time change. We just wake up angry, you know. And then that one glorious day in the fall, we're like, ah, this is kind of nice. Today's going to be a good day. I don't know why, but today it is. It used to be like when I was growing up, it was like, you know, they're putting things in the paper in your church for like three weeks ahead of time was like, hey, by the way, don't miss it. In a few weeks, it's coming up. Time change. And then uh, I think I found out about it last night, and it changed absolutely nothing except for, again, the rage at waking up. So thank you guys for making it out here. You did it. I'm proud of you. We can all point and laugh at some, if somebody has, like, a physical real alarm clock, and they walk in at 11 o'clock, and we're like, you goon, right? Anyway, um, thank you guys for joining us today. We're continuing on in our Hosea series, talking about this passage in particular, which is just an absolutely beautiful passage of scripture, uh, is actually sort of exceptionally difficult. It reminds me of like trying to describe why a song or an album is really good. I remember when uh, Chance the Rapper's Coloring Book album came out. I listened to it like 5,000 times, like just truly it was just on repeat forever. And I go to tell Sarah about why it's so good. And I like, uh, I want to share it with my bride since this is the greatest thing that I've ever listened to. And uh, it didn't go well. I don't know, like, it just didn't really work out. Now, uh, for context, Sarah is very white, and I think that's the real reason. Didn't affect me, though, you know? Like, I get it. Um, I tried to explain. I was like, you know, like, record labels, he has this, like, fight with them. That's why he makes this reference in the first song. And then I tried to say, like, you know, he's trying to find his place in the world. He's, like, too Christian for the, you know, uh, rap scene, but not really Christian enough for Christian music. You know, and both of them kind of don't accept him. And he's got this, like, baby mama, but, you know, uh, he's trying to do right by her. And he finally does, which is why he rele- releases the Big Day album, right? Like, you get to see this, like, huge arc, and she's just like, I I don't know. Can't really understand what he's saying, and I don't really get it. Like, yeah, it didn't work out, and it was really, really frustrating for me. I was like, no, 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 this is the best thing ever. You have to understand, but you really can't do this with like things that are exceptionally beautiful, right? And I think it's especially true of music. Like, if somebody has never listened to Bon Iver or Bon Iver, if you're pretentious, uh, like, have you ever tried to explain what's going on in that music and why it's good? It doesn't make any sense. You're like, all right, so this dude, he's kind of a producer. He went out to a cabin, and he just mixes a bunch of weird, screechy sounds together, and it's magic, and you'll weep, and you won't know what the words are, right? Like, that's kind of what's going on there. Uh, have you ever tried to explain why Fleetwood Mac even existed? You know, like that doesn't, it's crazy, right? I mean, and they made some of the most beautiful things. Or, you know, if you haven't understood any of these illusions, you're not like a music lover, you don't really understand or like music, then you could try and explain why Hamilton is a good musical, I guess, you know, for all of you anti-music people out there in the world. That was a shot across the bow at Hamilton, by the way, uh, and also dropping subtly that I got to go yesterday. Somehow, uh, you know, fate just smiled upon us, and we got the most coveted ticket in all of Denver. I don't really understand it, though. I got to be honest. Not on the Hamilton, Lin-Manuel, Miranda train, which I know uh, three weeks ago I said the word whoredom like nine times, or t- I guess last week. Two weeks ago I talked about money the entire time. Some of you are not any closer or more close to walking out right now than you were in either of those two weeks because I said something negative about Hamilton. 
But man, I just don't quite understand it. And if you try and get somebody there to explain it to you, they'll start weeping uh, and just like freaking out. I mean, there were people sitting around us like somebody would just step on stage and they were like, oh, like, you know, like they knew it was coming. They're kind of like half mumbling the words alongside. And man, I just, uh, yeah, I don't understand it, man. He's got the squeaky voice and the weird, it's like an affront to rap music. Like, I just, I don't get it. Um, anyway, it's really neither here nor there. It's very difficult when you find something to be exceptionally beautiful to actually talk about it in any, any sort of meaningful and concrete way. It's really, I found this out, I think, uh, when we were preaching through the Psalms. And I found that if I really liked the Psalm, it was like harder to actually preach and talk about. I was actually talking in our sermon meeting this week about this uh, passage. It's sort of like uh, in volleyball, you know, when somebody on your team hits it and it's kind of going close to the net. And all that you have to do is really sort of like help it out over the net and get out of the way. And then sometimes, just sometimes, you smack it right into the net, even if it was already going. Sometimes you like hit it way too hard and it flies out. And that is is all that I am trying to avoid today in talking about this passage. Today, I just want to tap it over and get out of the way. So first, what I'm going to do is uh, I want to actually just talk about uh, what's going to what we're going to be talking about. Let me give you a synopsis, and I believe we might have a slide with all of this on there. Um, this is basically a synopsis of this entire chapter, chapter two of the book of Hosea. First, we start off with the idea that Israel is an unfaithful wife. Then we go into a part that says God lets her go. She ends up unsatisfied. God lets her be unsatisfied. And then God goes after her and loves her and marries her forever. That is the basic synopsis of all of this. So I want you to sort of like keep that in mind as we're walking through this next passage, um, as we're sort of reading along, because sometimes it's easy to get lost in the language. You know, some of it doesn't really translate to modern day English so well or something. And we're not really trained all that well to like be able to read and understand and appreciate poetry. And so uh, that's sort of like what we're going to be walking through. Now you can sort of see as we walk through the text. Uh, those different elements. So what I'm going to do right now is actually read all of chapter two. So uh, you can join me with if you want, if you'd like, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV and you can turn there in your Bibles, Hosea chapter two. But here we go. Say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I stripped her naked and make her as the day she was born, make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. Then I will put an end to all of her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. 
I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, I will bring her into the wilderness, I will speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope, and she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the name of the Baals from, your ma- from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. I will betroth to you, you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no, no mercy. I will ha- say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Now, all I really want to do today is just point out three sort of simple ideas and things we take from this text. Uh, what I would highly recommend and would probably be even more meaningful and I think impactful for you than even this sermon is just going home, sitting quietly and reading through this three times to try and understand and appreciate. This is not like, you know, uh, where we're reading through one of Paul's letters and I'm like, here's the three things that he tells you to do so that you can go and live your life better. But instead, this is... This is a piece of ancient artwork. This is a glorious piece of poetry hidden in the middle of the Bible for us to be able to find that Hosea shares with us and then actually lives out as we see sort of in the first and the third chapter of the book of Hosea. And so all I'm doing is not sort of like covering every single sentence and and trying to sort of expand or, or make it bigger or better somehow, but just pulling out three simple ideas that I see in this text that I think at least this past week have really had a profound effect on how I understand myself and God. The first idea is that she, uh, the lover, has been, uh, or the, the wife has been sold a false bill of goods. If you look at uh, verse chapter, or verse five, uh, it says, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And what he's saying there is that, like, basically, as she's leaving, she's leaving her husband and she's thinking, like, I'll go after these other people. I'll go after, uh, you know, prostituting around. And I am searching for that because they are going to provide for me something that I don't actually have, something that I need in my life, but I don't have right now. And then in verse seven, it says she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. 
The picture here that is being painted is one of the wife who leaves her husband in search of these other things, but ends up continuing to chase after something that she can't quite get. It's kind of like the donkey with like the stick over it, and there's like a carrot dangling out in front. And as close, like as further and further away from her husband as she gets, she keeps getting closer and closer to this thing that she thinks is going to satisfy her. But at the end, it says she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. She leaves her husband seeking something more, looking for something that's just out of reach, something that she's not able to catch, something that she is not able to grasp. It's kind of this like classic bait and switch, right? Here she is, she's in a relationship, and she says, you know what, I could be more satisfied. And so she goes out looking for it somewhere else and then finds that it's not actually there. It actually reminds me of some sort of like human trafficking today, right? That right now, people are being lured away from their homes, lured away from everything that they know, lured away from maybe their families and everything like that in hopes of a better world. You know, you can like read stories on people that are shipped halfway across the planet thinking that, you know, like they'll be able to find some sort of job in America or something like that. And then they get here and they find that they're like locked into this weird sort of semi-slavery kind of uh, environment. And that's what it feels like here, right? Like they're like looking at what they have. She's like saying, well, okay, this is this is my life now. And then she starts looking around, trying to find something else that could satisfy her, trying to find something else that can actually bring more joy, more satisfaction, more life to her. And then she gets there only to find that she can't actually get get to where she's going. She can't actually arrive. She's pursuing but cannot overtake it. And odds are in your life you've probably felt something like this before, right? Like that purchase that turned out to be not all that it was cracked up to be. That job that you took uh, that didn't quite turn out how it hoped, or maybe that relationship with that person that started out to be one way, but then turns out they weren't actually who they represented themselves to be. I mean, this is an exceptionally human experience that I think we can all understand and relate to. And it's so painful. I mean, to put yourself in sort of the, the shoes of the, the wife here and to sort of understand like this sort of impulse to run, uh, to seek satisfaction, to find something that you feel like you need, that you want, that you feel like you can't find where you are, to run away from it, and then to find that you can't actually grasp it, you can't actually attain it. It's like the pain of the switch is increased by how much hope you have in the bait. And this is what happens to Israel in the poem today. And here's sort of the most painful part. If you look down to verse 8, it says, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. See, it turns out that the husband, God here, is looking at the wife and he's saying, like, it's crazy that she goes out seeking for these things, and that she did not know that it was I who gave her all of these things that she wanted. It was I who was actually offering to her all of these things she thought she needed. I was giving to her the grain, the wine, and the oil. The same grain and wine and oil that she used to worship another god, that she used to chase after Baal. I was the one who lavished on her these nice and wealthy things, silver and gold, only for her to go seeking something else. 
The irony here is that she goes out seeking for satisfaction, and it turns out that God was there providing everything that she needed and more the entire time. It's kind of like this weird sort of circular thing that happens, right? So she, here she is. She's married uh, to God. She's married to her husband. He is satisfying everything that she needs. He is giving her what she needs. But yet somehow she still feels like she's missing something. So she runs out. She tries to find it somewhere else. And then she chases it down, chases it down, chases it down until she can't chase anymore, never actually overtakes it, never actually arrives at it. And then it turns out that it's God that steps back in to say, hey, I'll take you back and give you what you actually need. I've been doing this the entire time. It becomes this weird circular thing. We go searching for something to satisfy. It turns out that it's empty or we can't attain it anyway. God rescues us and fills the hole inside of us. And then somehow we get it back in our heads that we need to run, that we need to go, that we need to find what we're looking for somewhere else. I remember uh, when Sarah and I first met and uh, we first started dating, I actually kind of uh, feel like I did something similar. Now, I didn't sell myself into prostitution, uh, but, uh, and also, let the record officially show, we have it on camera now and on a podcast, we weren't actually dating when this happened. We were just sort of talking, I believe the kids would call it now. Not really sure what the uh, common parlance is on that, but uh, we were hanging out. And uh, it was freshman year of college, and I thought to myself, you know what? It's freshman year. I've already met this nice girl. I wonder how many other nice girls there are out there. So I, I went to sow my wild oats. Now, I told Sarah, you know, I needed some space. I needed, you know, time. I needed to go out there and experience life and college and everything. Uh, except for I phrased it more like I need to spend more time on studying because I'm a coward and a liar. So um, I told her, hey, I need to go out and, uh, you know, I need to study more. And I discovered two things. First off, uh, it didn't really matter how much work I put into it. I could generally sort of like eek by with a B. The studying thing was just totally bunk, right? And I could probably give up a little bit of time and still probably swing that. So I uh, gave up on that. I also realized uh, that there weren't better fish in the sea as it goes, right? Like, it's crazy. I went out there and I was like, you know what? I'm going to, like, actually sort of explore. I don't want to be a cliche. That was really, I think, the fear that I had. I don't want to be a cliche. We're freshmen. You know, I want to be like a, a lot of you cool guys getting married, like, later on in life. That sounds fun, right? Like, exploring, looking around, you know, like... I don't know. I never got to experience it. Maybe it is fun. I'm not really sure. But uh, I was like, I don't want to be a cliche. We're going to be like, you know, married right after college and everything like that. And then, you know, 11 years later, I'm going to look back on my life and feel so sad and wasted. Not true. We're actually coming up on our 11th year anniversary uh, this weekend, right? 11 years. Isn't that crazy? And imagine... If during that time I had just uh, taken this little period of sowing my wild oats or whatever and just made it into a lifestyle, you know, just running, running, running. Man, it's crazy to, like, think back. I mean, you guys may not like me too much now as a person in general, but if I didn't have Sarah, I can tell you it would be a monster, right? And I think anyone that knows Sarah must know that that's actually true and that, uh, like, no one is like, I don't believe you. Like, if you've met Sarah, you're like, yes, yes, he is much better off, right? Man, it's crazy to, like, think back. That, like, here I was, I was, like, seemingly satisfied, but some sort of allure was out there, something that I felt like might could satisfy me more. I felt like there was something else out there. I felt like I was missing out on something. And so I go chasing after this thing. 
I do it for about a month or two before I start begging Sarah to take me back, which she wisely reluctantly did, right? Like she was a little bit sort of like, I don't know if I want to get back into this. And then uh, I was persistent. So anyway, all that to say, man, I think it's like this crazy thing that tells us something about who we are as human beings. That something is inside of us that makes it difficult for us to understand and appreciate what's actually good and useful and meaningful and purposeful in our lives. It makes us want to like walk away and chase things that are probably not even good for us. Sometimes it makes us want to walk away and chase things just because they're different. Just because they're different than what we've seen, different from what we've experienced. And I think it's true of our relationship with God, too. Maybe even most specifically. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, if you identify as a follower of Jesus here in this room, you probably think to yourself, like, God is good, right? And he's there and he satisfies my needs. He gives me exactly what I need. He gives me even what I want. He gives me love. He gives me uh, freedom. He gives me joy. He gives me peace. He gives me all of these things. And yet, still somehow, we find ourselves running away. I really tried to find, like, a, a personal example of this. I tried to find, like, oh, this is where I've done this in my life. And I haven't had, like, this period where I'm like, man, forget God, I'm out of here for like three years or something like that. But what I thought about as I was thinking about this is I do this like every single day. Like I pull up my budget and I end up finding myself like praying to the God of money or something to be like, man, I, I wish I had more of this. I need more of this. I, I, if I can just figure this out, if I can just make this financial move, then all of a sudden I'll like have more, you know, autonomy and security in my life. I find myself daily praying to things, to like things that I want online, praying to like the God of stuff for satisfaction. I find myself praying to the God of Netflix to keep me distracted and keep me like satisfied when my life feels all junky and messed up inside. I find myself even praying to other relationships, praying to other human beings in my life, asking them to fill the void that exists inside of myself. When if you just sat me down and asked me, like, is that good? Is that a healthy thing for you to do? Any of those things, I would look at you and I would tell you those things are never going to satisfy. Those things are never actually going to fill the hole inside of me. I mean, I, I do like pastoral counseling. It never happens this way, but I can't imagine my reaction if somebody walked up and they were like, I don't know, man. I Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling really depressed, so I decided to uh, binge a new series on Netflix. Like, what am I supposed to say to that? Like, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Good for you. Go get them, you know, right? Somebody said, hey, uh, man, I am feeling this sort of like sense of existential dread. So I'm going to like use my friendships as like a substitute for God. I think that'd probably be a good way to make myself satisfied and happy. No. And yet we all do it all the time. It's like we have it in the back of our heads that God is going to satisfy us. And then the second we feel like we're not getting exactly what we want or we need, the second we feel the slightest tinge of dissatisfaction, the second that we see something outside that looks like it is better, we try and chase after it. We try and get it to fill the void that is lacking in our lives. And all along, what this passage shows us is that while we are doing that, while we're going through our fickle cycles of like, God, I love you. God, I don't love you. God, I'm chasing after this stuff. God, I'm chasing after you. And we're doing all of that. God is consistently and actively coming after us. 
He is seeking us. He is coming to find us even when we are actively pushing away from him. Second thing that I want us to see and really sort of like think about and dive into is found in verse 16 and 17. It's this contrast that we see between Baal and God. Verse 16 says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baals from their mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Now, uh, if you were here back in our Judges series, uh, you know, some time ago, we talked about Baal a lot. Uh, there was one particular Sunday where we did like a deep dive, I believe it was in Judges 6, if you want to take a look back at that. Um, Baal was like a frequent character in the ancient Near East. He, uh, the name was representative of probably a group of deities. In fact, you could kind of have like localized Baals. You could have like the Baal of, you know, Jezreel or Jerusalem or something like that. And, uh, they would be sort of like specific to a, a, a locale. And so it wasn't like necessarily one person. It was kind of this like catch all word for like Lord, basically. And these deities uh, were more like a Zeus kind of style god. You know, they were kind of distant. They have like blessings and curses. You know, like a big storm would come up and that means that Baal is unhappy with you. You'd have a good crop yield and that would mean that Baal is happy with you. Uh, people would like put little statues on the edges of their field just to increase their crop yield, that kind of stuff. But this guy was not necessarily a good guy. You would worship him by uh, different types of kind of uh, sacrifices, but also uh, with different sort of like sexual practices that would happen. Uh, his festivals turned into sort of these orgies and stuff like that. Uh, there was a lot of like even um, mutilation and stuff. And in some of the um, practices of Baal, you would even like offer up your children as sacrifices. Uh, these were all the things that were like common to practicing worshiping Baal. And this is actually what's happening right here. This is like the main sort of context for the entire book of Hosea, that God is looking at his people Israel and he's saying, hey, I'm the one that made a covenant with you that I would be your God no matter what. Why are you chasing after this other God? I'm here. I'm providing for you. I'm the same God that took you across the Red Sea. I'm the same God that saved you from Pharaoh. I'm the same God that gave you manna in the wilderness. Why in the world are you looking at me as if I'm not going to provide now? Why are you looking at this hunk of wood that you carved and now are calling your God? So what God is saying here, too, he's making a contrast and he's saying, no longer will you say to me, I am your Baal. Now you will say to me, I am your husband. Now, there's a really interesting sort of like language thing that's happening here that we probably don't appreciate. There's actually three different meanings to the word Baal. The first is sort of like Lord or God. The second one is master or possessor, sort of the one who is in charge, the one who controls you, the one who... Uh, who is like an owner of you, right? He is your master. He is your possessor. And then the final one is actually husband. That it could actually be translated as a term for husband. Now, if you think about that, all of that being wrapped up into the name of this ancient Near Eastern deity, this like false god that's out there, it is really, really, really screwed up. I know uh, none of you are tempted towards worshiping this false god Baal, but it's crazy to look back on the ancient Near East and be like comparing these two. Here you have God who will not be named, right? Like that's why if you've ever seen like Yahweh spelled out without any of the uh, of the uh, what he calls vowels, 
Sorry, took a minute. Uh, that's because that's like a, a Jewish way of like representing that they're not actually saying God. In fact, Moses actually looks at God and he says, God, how, who are you? I want to, and what name shall I call you? And he says, I am that I am. He is a God who will not be named. And his biggest competition, so to speak, here in the ancient Near East is a word for husband, master, possessor, and God all wrapped into one. What is happening here on three different levels, God is saying, you will call me my husband, not my husband in the Baal sense. He's saying, you will call me my husband, not my possessor, not my master. You will call me my husband, not my false God. I love the sort of beauty of that that's inherent in that kind of statement and that designation. We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, so I don't want to dive too much into it. But what is happening here is God is not just saying, hey, don't follow these false gods. He's actually giving us a better picture of what it means to love someone in general. And he's saying, hey, I don't buy into this like master possessor designation. That's not really love. I don't buy into that picture of what it means to be a husband. He says, from now on, you will call me your husband because I love you. God is saying, not that, but this, something better, something beautiful. I actually heard this story a little while ago about this lady who got scammed on the Internet. Uh, it was a guy who, like, pretended to fall in love with her, and he was doing, like, a phishing email and just sort of, like, you know, uh, caught this lady. You know, in theory, he, like, sent out 10,000 of these emails, right, and started this, like, conversation with people all over the country. Who knows where they got the emails? He starts, like, talking to all of these different people, and uh, she responded, others responded, and started going down this, like, rabbit hole of, like, sending him money, uh, starts, like, uh, trying to, you know, help him accomplish things. Like, he'd say, oh, I'm trying to get to the States, so send some, some money, and then, you know, he doesn't actually use that money to come to the States or something like that, uh, describes this whole life. And in this weird way, uh, it turns out they actually ended up falling in love. He scammed her out of thousands of dollars. And then at the same time, they developed this, like, beautiful online relationship. And then even, like, actually made it over to the States and gave up his, like, weird scamming catfishing ways. And now here they are living happily in Rhode Island with two kids and a Labradoodle, right? Like, it's the strangest, most impossible thing. And it all started by this, like, weird, fake scam kind of life and I can't imagine that like transition right like I don't know uh, as, as evidenced by my other story that I told this morning I was never like a killer in the dating scene I don't know how you shift from like I was trying to scam money from you but now I would like to marry you and make you my wife like that is a that's a big swing right like you know big risk big reward right there also he has to find a new job now I would think you know like what if this happened again I would be very worried about that if I was the wife What's strange about that, I think, is that, like, obviously it's a weird story and love can happen anywhere. But what I'm worried about, and I think what God is trying to say right here, is that we should not be accepting of sort of the Internet scam version of God, right? Like, we should not accept this catfish false God for who he is. Here, God is looking at his people and he's saying, no longer shall you refer to something that you are worshiping as Baal because master, possessor... Owner, those things do not apply to me. That is not how I look at you. I am your husband. 
God is saying, you won't get that internet scam version of God from me. You'll only get the real thing. But that's the important, I mean, that's the whole thing about like an, an internet scam kind of thing, like a, a phishing scam or something like that. It's difficult to know when it's legit and when it's not. I thought about this uh, just very briefly of like some signs to know. I, I don't want to turn in this into like, you know, you might be a redneck if or something like that. But here's some signs to know if you have this catfish false version of God. And these might be a little bit tongue in cheek, but at the end of the day, it's crazy how we are so ready and willing and just excited even to step into accepting some false version of God that we've been given. Does your God operate on guilt and shame? Is your relationship with God one that is fraught with just always feeling like you are doing the wrong thing and that he is shaming you for it? That is not a true picture of God. That is not the same God that will chase after you even when you're running after him. That is not the same God that will pay for you and purchase you and rescue you from your own sin and guilt. Does your picture of God only value what you can output, not who you are as a human being? Does your conception of God really only value you if you are doing things for him, if you are accomplishing things, if you are going places and doing things, talking to people, if you are doing what he says, is that the only reason why he might love and value you? That is not a true picture of God. That is a false God that has snuck into your heart. Is his love conditional on something? Do you have to bring something to the table for this God to love you? And, and think about this seriously. When you are thinking about your relationship with God, are you having to bring something to the table? Are you having to earn somehow his love? Is it conditional on some sort of act of yours? Because that is not at all consistent with the God that we see throughout Scripture. And I hope if you're actually sort of like thinking through these questions, I hope that it is painful. I hope that in some ways it is illuminating. And that we might see that we've been chasing after trying to please some God that we invented in our own minds. I mean, just think of, like, imagine the picture of that, right? Like, imagine for just a moment that you are God, and you're looking at your people, and you're saying, hey, here are the promises that I'm going to make to you. Here's what I'm going to give to you. Here's what I am going to be to you. I will be as your husband. And then we look at him, and we say, no, God, we're fine. You know, like, I think I'm going to go over here and try and find satisfaction somewhere else. And then, in sort of this, like, crazy sort of audacious moment, we're looking at this, like, fake perception of God that's created. I mean, we're not like carving out idols anymore, but the experience is still the same. We're saying like, no, no, this picture that I have in my head of what God is is actually really good. You know, I really enjoy it. It's really fine. Even though we're like consistently dissatisfied, even though we're consistently frustrated with what's actually happening in our life, we're trying to convince ourselves like, no, 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 this picture that I have is really, really good. Good God, you don't understand. And God is standing over here being the, the real thing, the only real and true God and he's looking over at us trying to find satisfaction in some little mud pie that we've created for ourselves it has to be heartbreaking and what's beautiful in this passage is like yeah he's frustrated 
Yeah, he allows us to go and chase after these things. He allows us to be unsatisfied. But then he comes after us. Verse 14 is sort of this transition moment in the text. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He finds his wife selling her body for money, and his response is not just to chastise her. It is not to snatch her out. It is not to lash out and rage at the people around her. No, his response is actually to romance her, to allure her, to speak tenderly to her, because that is just who God is. That is who our God is. No matter how far away you feel right now, he is doing the exact same thing to you. No matter how unworthy of his love you might actually be feeling right now, he is actually the one that is alluring you. He is the one that is romancing you. He's saying to you now, come back. Come back to me. I will speak tenderly to you. I will forgive you completely. I will love you completely. I will know you completely. I will heal your wounds. I will put you back together. I will restore you to me. You will call me husband and I will call you my beloved. The final thing that I want to draw out and see from this passage it's not so much just directly from this passage, but also just sort of this entire sort of feeling of Hosea and even elsewhere in the Bible. I want to ask the question, why do we feel like the cheater? Like, why is this something that we can actually empathize and understand with? It's kind of weird, right? Like other religions, I don't imagine there's this sort of like component of like, you know, cheating on the God that loves you. But yet this feeling feels kind of universal, like we understand it. You know, we try to make Christianity down to like this kind of binary decision, right? Like at some point somebody's like, hey, here's Jesus, here's the gospel. What do you think about that? And then we're like, well, yeah or no. And then that's kind of like all that it is. But man, you don't see that here, right? Like uh, he doesn't go and find her as she's prostituting herself out. And he's like, all right, here's my uh, three point presentation. Admit, believe, commit, and then come back to me, right? No, that is not how it is at all. All of this language is like far too grand for that. All of this is just too huge for something so simple, a sort of like check yes or no kind of relationship with God. We see this throughout all of Scripture too, right? Like when Jesus is making examples of people and when he's like talking about how we relate to God, he uses things like the prodigal son, a son who leaves his father, runs away, wastes all of his wealth, and then believes he is no longer worthy of his father. He uses examples like the lost sheep, where a shepherd has 99 sheep in the pen, and he goes out chasing after one to find it and bring it back. What's interesting is our relationship with Christ is not just adversarial, right? Like we don't just have this relationship where we're sort of like against him. It's not just sort of a, you know, check yes or no, like a, I like God, I don't like God. That does happen. But very often, it can be described as adulterous. Not just adversarial, but adulterous. That we're running away from him. That 
that we are cheating on him. This idea of sort of like a binary yes or no kind of relationship with Jesus, I don't think actually works out because I think, at least in my experience, a courtship is probably a more appropriate way to describe it. Jesus comes after us. We fall in love with him. We fall out of love with Jesus. We cheat. We abuse. We hurt. And every single time he comes after us. And why is the picture... Why is it that the picture of a God who is willing to run after me is more compelling than any sort of like take it or leave it kind of God? Like I could make some simpler kind of gods. I could like conceive of like a a better, easier kind of God in my mind. And yet this is a more compelling and interesting picture than anything I have ever seen. What does that say about us as human beings? What does it say about the way that we were actually hardwired to think and to feel and to believe and relate to God? In prepping for uh, the series, uh, I and a few other people around uh, read through a book called Redeeming Love. It is written by uh, Francine Rivers. I kind of expected like applause there. I don't know. It's a good book, you know, like people love it, uh, especially if you've read it. You're probably a fan, I would imagine. Uh, Francine Rivers, I actually uh, listened to the audiobook and found uh, they had like an interview with her at the end, which was just really amazing. She uh, was like a Harlequin romance novelist, you know. She's writing like, you know, the trashy novels with like Fabio on the cover, you know, with like shirt ripped half, ripped half open, stuff like that, you know. Like, seriously, that was what she did for her job. And uh, she somehow got connected in with a church. Uh, started going to a small group and said that in that like small group Bible study, she became a believer. And they were studying through the book of Hosea. And as they were studying, she was really just convicted as to what she did. And she said that she did not write a book for three years. She stopped writing completely. And this, like I said, this was her profession. She wrote these like books, and that's how she got by. For three years, she stopped doing it completely. And after that three years, uh, redeeming love is what she came out with. And she said that uh, she's actually stopped publication. She owns all the rights to those other books, and she has stopped publication on them. She's not accepting another cent for uh, the sales of those books. She's sort of turned completely away from that. And she writes this book called Redeeming Love, which is basically an allegory for the story in Hosea. And it's sort of written more sort of from the perspective of who would be Gomer. Um, it's the story of a prostitute who is rescued um, from prostitution by this farmer whose name is Michael Hosea. And then the rest of the book sort of just shows this, like, you know, she's constantly being pulled back and forth from her old life. She doesn't trust this new life. She doesn't trust that Hosea really has her best interest at heart. She doesn't trust God. She doesn't trust any of this thing, this stuff. Um, she runs away. She cheats on him. She goes back to her old life. He rescues her multiple times. He's going back and forth. It is a total roller coaster. I mean, there was like this one point where I was sitting there reading and I was like, come on, Francine, like, no way this can't happen. Right. And then uh, I didn't even know there was more coming for me, man. Um, I have to admit, uh, this was the first time, I think, maybe in the entire pandemic, that I was really, really glad that masks exist, existed. Uh, I was on an airplane, and uh, I was writing, and I was finishing up the, the book, and I was sitting there, and there was this, uh, this little dude beside me who uh, didn't speak English very well, and we were in the exit row, and I just remember, like, uh, she came by, and she was like... Uh, can you follow all the rules? Can you open up this door? Can you save everyone in this plane? You know, that weird discussion that they give you, like, are you a hero? Do you want to sit in this row? I'm like, no, I just want the leg room. But I'll say yes, right? He looks at me and he goes, what'd she say? 
Like, I was like, this is not good. We're all going to die here if something happens, right? Like, he was just not even interested. So I'm like, uh, we, yeah, I'm sitting next to him. We had a few other little interactions, and then I put my headphones in and I'm listening to my uh, Francine Rivers. And then it gets to the near the end, and this, uh, I'm trying not to give away spoilers. You really, really should read the book. Uh, but, man, I am sitting there. i got glasses on. I decide to throw my hood up because I'm a man, and crying in public is not cool. Throw my hood up. I've got my mask on, and I am just weeping my eyes out on an airplane next to a complete and total stranger because it is that freaking beautiful. And you know the strangest part about this? And this is, I don't know, we're going to get into some weird water. Just hold on. It's going to get strange around here. Man, uh, I did not at all empathize with the, like, Michael Hosea character. I was sitting there reading it, and I was like, man, I wish a Michael Hosea would come rescue me. I was like, man, I'm sitting there in my scarlet satin dress, and he walks in with those strong farmer arms, strong enough to carry water up from the creek so I can have a bath, but gentle enough to pick berries. And I imagine that he would find me in some California gold rush town, plying my wares, scoop me up in those powerful arms, and rescue me. <laughs> I'm not even ashamed. I've got to be honest. If you, read, if you read it, you'd get it. You'd get it, all right? And I'm sorry, John Eldridge, but I did not want to be the hero of this story. I wanted to be the damsel in distress, right? That was exactly where I fit in this tale. I wanted to be rescued. I know. It took a weird turn. You weren't expecting it today. Here we are. <sighs> Man. All sort of like ridiculous gender norms aside, all sort of, you know, foolishness that that is aside, there is something deep inside of me that is crying out for someone to rescue me, even from my own folly and even from my own weakness. There is something deep inside of me that wants that so desperately. That when I'm chasing after every single thing but God, when I'm trying to fill my life with something that would satisfy, I need him. I need him to come and pick me up out of it. Because I can't do it myself. And it sort of takes, it takes clarity to be able to even see and admit that. It takes knowing the goodness of God to even believe that that is something that is possible in our lives. And it takes a lifelong pursuit, a lifelong hunger, waiting for him to come and do that. Because it's not something that just happens sort of once in our life. It's not just this one sort of yes or no decision where he saves us and rescues us from our sin. That does actually happen. But then it is this lifelong thing where we represent the wayward wife the one who is always running away and he is the one who is always coming to get us he is always the one who is stepping into our mess that we have created for ourselves so that he might bring us back to him in fact i said during the series we're going to ask the same question every single time and i think that you cannot actually understand the answer to this question unless you actually have been rescued by this God. The question is, what would you do if you knew that you were loved completely? What would you do if you knew that you were known completely? What would you do if you knew that you were forgiven completely? 
until you allow yourself to be scooped up into his powerful arms and rescued out of something that you have built for yourself, there is no way to know the answer to that question. And here's the beautiful thing. After busting in and saving her from herself, after seeing her chase after everything but him and then having to step in one more time to be the rescuer, this is what God says to the people of Israel. And I believe that it is the exact same promise that he is making to you today. In fact, it is a promise that is only realized in Jesus. We actually see it in Israel. They're like seeing little glimpses of it, but we don't fully realize it until Jesus comes. We have the benefit of seeing God actually put this into action. This is what he says in verse 19. He says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. The amazing thing about each of those descriptors is that they are not things that we bring to the table. In fact, he shows us mercy. He shows us steadfast love. He brings his righteousness. He brings his justice to us. He betroths us to him in faithfulness, not because we are faithful, but because he is infinitely faithful. Man, don't you want this in your life? God has done this for you and for me. And he does it continually for me, for you and for me. Jesus came to betroth you to him in love forever. My hope and my prayer is that we may hunger and thirst for this rescue. That we may desire it. And my trust, what I know, what I believe is that God is faithful. Faithful to continue chasing after us even when we're running away from him. Faithful to forgive the worst and every single thing that we've done. Faithful to love us even when we feel unlovable and don't love him. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.